I was uh, I was in a, a pharmacy recently, and um, it's because my eardrum was about to rupture, which at this point should not even be shocking to us as a church, right? Like, it's just typical Tuesday for Alex, eardrum's about to rupture. But here I was in a pharmacy I had never been in before, and there was a sign hanging up in there, and it said this. It said, there are no strangers here, only friends we have not yet met. And I thought to myself... You should be able to put that sign up in any church building, right? That's a beautiful sentiment. There are no strangers here, only strangers we have not yet met. The the key word being should. You should be able to put that up in any church building. The problem is, as Christians, we often uh, are not who we are called to be. Right? Christians are supposed to be the most loving, welcoming people on earth, and yet we fail at that, don't we? Yeah, of course we do. Obviously, we fail at that all the time. Um, And that's especially true here in the South, where church can become more of a culture than a gathered group of believers who are seeking to do life together and glorify God and expand His kingdom. We kind of turn church into this culture. Actually, what we do very often is we turn the church into a country club. And uh, that's a big no-no. Like, I don't know. I I like to play golf. I'm not good at it. I do like it. I'm no Christian bright, so you'll have to forgive me for that. But (laughs) there is, any time I drive by a country club, I think to myself, I do not belong there. Like, I've seen the way I play golf. I, I, I know that I do not belong in that place. And a lot of times, it's not even about your skill level. So it's a status thing, right? Like you work in the right industry, you have the right amount of money, you dress the, the nice way, you have all the right connections. And so maybe that's why you can get in. But if you drive by a country club, if you're like me, you look at that place and you think, I do not belong there. Like, I, I know that I cannot even go in there, let alone play there. I am not welcome there. And sadly, that is kind of what we've done with the church. We have people today who will look at a church, they'll drive by church buildings, and they think the same thing about a church building. They look at it and they say, I don't belong there. I know what my life is. I I know that they've got their own culture, their own way that they talk in there. They dress and they do these things. And I know what my life has been. And as much as I would like to go in there, I know that I have no place in there. I am an outsider and a stranger. And they think this because for many people, many people around here, they didn't even grow up in church. So they haven't been in church their whole lives. They, they, uh, they've been out of church their whole lives. Their lives have not been squeaky clean. And there's this perception that to be a Christian, your life has had to be perfect throughout your entire life, right? Like, hey, you have to live this perfect, squeaky clean life. And if not, well, you're not welcome here. And praise the Lord, that's not true, right? Anyone else thankful for that this morning? That you don't have to be perfect to be welcome here? I'm especially thankful for that, but that's what so many people think. They think, well, I've messed up, I've been living in sin, and so I can't go there. For other people, maybe they were part of the church for a time, and they, they were part of church culture, and they were following Jesus, and they were getting involved, and they were coming to services, and everything was great, but then what happened? They walked away from God. They left the church. They became backslidden. And they've been living in sin for so long that they now think, there's no way I can go back. I'm an outsider now. I'm not welcome back in that place. I have 
no place there in the family of God. I have, I have no purpose in the plan of God because I'm an outsider. And that's why we're in the book of Ruth this morning. I love this book. I've told you there will be a sermon series at some point. But we're in the book of Ruth because it teaches us this all-important lesson that outsiders have a place in God's family and plan. That's what I want us to understand as we're studying this passage together this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been out of church your whole life, never darken the doors of a church. It doesn't matter if you were part of a church for a time and you were seeking God, but then you walked away and you became backslidden. The good news for everybody this morning is that outsiders have a place in God's family and plan. It's because God extends grace to outsiders. And, and if you're wondering how exactly that works, how does, how does God take someone who has been out of the church their whole life or someone who walked away and then bring them back and make them part of the family? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. How does God's grace extend to outsiders? How does it extend to outsiders? What does he do? And as we're addressing that, we have to play a little bit of catch-up, right? Because we're jumping right into the book of Ruth, chapter 2. And so uh, you can you know, think about this like previously in the book of Ruth. And we'd give a little synopsis, right? So there was a, a man uh, of Israel named Elimelech, and he had a wife named Naomi, and they had two sons, and they were living in Bethlehem, uh, part of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. But it was during the time of the judges, and if you remember your biblical history, this was a really fun time to live in Israel because according to the Bible, during the time of Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so it was actually quite a dangerous time to live in Israel. It was full of sin and rebellion and people rejecting God and his law. But the word of God says that the Israelites, no matter what, they were supposed to stay in the promised land. They were supposed to devote themselves to God, follow him. And no matter what happened, no matter if there was a war or famine or plague or anything, they were supposed to trust God to provide. But that's not what Elimelech did. He uprooted his family and they left Israel. It was basically their way of saying, listen, all this bad stuff is happening. There's a famine now. There's all sorts of sin going on. We can do better for ourselves. We can better provide for ourselves and our family and our life than God can. And so they took their lives in their own hand and they left. And, and it's not just that they left, but, but they went to the worst possible place you could go. They went to the land of Moab, right? Uh, if you remember from our scripture reading time that Jordan was talking about, you know that the Moabites were the hated enemies of Israel. And it's been this way since the nation started. If you want to read about that story, you're going to have to go to Genesis. And I'm not even going to get into it here this morning. Go to Genesis and try to find where the nation of Moab started. They were the hated enemies of the Israelites. And that's where this man, Elimelech, takes his family to go and live. And while they're there... Their two sons marry Moabite women. Another big no-no. You were not supposed to marry a Moabite woman. So what happens? Well, Elimelech, both of his sons, they die. And so you have three women who are left. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi decides she has to go back to Bethlehem because she's hopeless at this point. She's empty. She is bare. She said the hand of the Almighty was against her. And so she figures, well, if I've got to die, I might as well die in my homeland. So she goes back to Bethlehem, but uh, Orpah stayed behind, but Ruth refused to leave her mother-in-law. 
In fact, Ruth famously said this. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, here's what you need to understand. Yes, she was committing herself to her mother-in-law and seeking to care for her. But more than that, they're in this helpless, hopeless situation. Uh, Naomi's ready to throw everything in. She has contented herself to die. But Ruth, who has clearly heard stories about the God of Israel, Yahweh, says, No, we're going back and I'm entrusting myself to your God. Your God will be my God. And we're going back together because I trust that your God that I've heard about is going to care for us and provide for us. And so what Ruth is actually doing is not just committing herself to Naomi, she's entrusting herself to the Lord. She's casting herself upon the mercy of God. And so here's what happened. They returned to Bethlehem. They have no husbands. They have no jobs. They have no money. They have no house. They have nothing. They come back completely empty. They have no way to even provide for themselves. Everything is hopeless, and it seems like they are both soon to die. And that's actually where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. You see what it says there. Naomi, she had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I I shall find favor. And so she said to her, Go, my daughter. And she set out, and she went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, pause. We understand this irony, right? (laughs) The Bible does not teach coincidence. This is the sovereignty of God at work here, folks. If you ever doubt that God is sovereign and in control of everything, he sovereignly guides Ruth to the very part of the field that belongs to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech, which is going to be incredibly important later. So it's not just happened to come. She was sovereignly guided there. She comes to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, if you're wondering what in the world is going on here, you have to keep in mind that in those days, the law of God made a provision for the poor. Basically, if you were an Israelite farmer, you were not to glean the edges of your field. You were to leave them untouched so that the poor and less fortunate could come And they could provide for their own needs. They actually had a time and a place where they could work to provide for their own needs. So they weren't just coming asking for a handout. They were actually given an opportunity to provide for their needs. So the Israelite farmers were to leave the edges of their field untouched. You can think about the edges of fields. They were kind of like community gardens in those days. You just come and pick what you need, right? Well, here's the problem. Remember, we already said they're living during the time of the judges. And so the people of Israel at the time did not care that the law of God made this provision because they did what was right in their own eyes. 
And so it was actually incredibly dangerous to go into someone's field at this time because not every Israelite farmer was happy that any person could just come into his field and glean and and reap the edges of the field. It was incredibly dangerous. That's exactly why Ruth had said to Naomi, maybe I'll find favor in someone's eyes. And when I go into their field, she's saying, hey, listen, I know we're in a desperate situation. I know we have no food. We have no way to provide for ourselves. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go out into a field and we're just going to pray that God's going to direct me to someone's field who's going to have favor in, towards me and mercy upon me so that we can meet our needs. But you need to understand it was dangerous to do this. They could try to kill you just for stepping foot on their property. If you want an idea of what this would kind of be like, just at some point during next summer, go to drive down Saluda Dam Road, find a garden, and just walk through it. And you'll see how quickly and how dangerous it is to do something like that. You'll be greeted with all sorts of weaponry here on Saluda Dam Road. So that's how dangerous it is at the time. You walk into someone's garden, you walk into someone's field, things could get real, real quick. And that was true for Israelites. So imagine how much more dangerous it was if you were a Moabite, like Ruth. If you were an Israelite, you could be killed. If you're a Moabite, it's even more dangerous for you. They were hated enemies. And and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's supposed to be this constant underlying tension throughout the book of Ruth. Because have you ever noticed when you read the book of Ruth, she's almost never called just Ruth, right? Right? Throughout the entire book, she is almost always called what? Ruth the Moabite. It is this constant reminder that she's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She does not belong here. She's not part of the people of God. Even Boaz's young men, they harbor this resentment towards her because they refer to her as Ruth the Moabite. She's the young Moabite woman who came from Moab. Again, they're just putting a bug in Boaz's ears. Hey, I know you think she's pretty. But she's a Moabite. She's, she came from the land of Moab. Don't be interested in her. There's hatred and distrust for no other reason than the fact that she does not come from the right place. And I've only experienced this to, to a, a much lesser degree in my life, only one time. And it was uh, when we took our mission trip to South Dakota. And we went to work among the the Sioux Indian Reservation uh, that was there. And we were working there. And as we're in South Dakota, at one point, we stopped by Dollar General. And I had to go inside with a couple other people. We walk inside, and I was absolutely surprised because I'm just walking in, just happy. Like, all right, get some snacks or something. And people start looking at me and the people who are with me with all this hatred and disgust. I mean, just giving us the meanest looks you could possibly imagine. And I'm like, I know I'm wearing deodorant, so I don't stink yet. But, like, I don't know what's going on here. So we're, you know, we're making our way through. And I kid you not, this is what happened. I start walking down an aisle at one point, and there's a man there with his child. And I'm all happy go. I'm like, hey, man, how are you? And he doesn't say anything to me. He grabs his child and pulls his child closer to him. And I'm like, have you seen me? At what point did you become intimidated by me walking down this aisle? Like you thought that I was going to do something. But he did. He pulls his child closer, doesn't say anything to me, and then they scoot by me. And so there was all this hatred and resentment and hostility because we were not like the locals. We were outsiders, and they hated us. And that's exactly what Ruth is experiencing here as she enters in to Bethlehem and into this field. She's got this resentment, but not only that, we said it was dangerous 
If you want to understand today the type of danger she would be in, it would be like today if a Jewish person were to cross the border and walk into Palestine. If a Jewish person does that today, they're almost immediately killed or kidnapped and tortured and then killed. It's because the Palestinians hate the Jews. Just look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. The Palestinians hate them for no other reason than the fact that they are Jewish. And so if you come into their territory, you're in danger. And that's exactly what Ruth is experiencing here. Not only is there animosity and hatred, there's danger. And she could easily be killed. But notice, as we're studying this, as we're reading this story, you, have to, you see that the, there's tension on the part of the Israelites towards Ruth. Even Boaz's young men, they have this animosity. But the question is, as Boaz comes on the scene, the master of the field, we're all left wondering, well, what's he going to do? Everyone around him has this level of hostility. Everyone around him has some level of animosity. What about him? How will he treat the outsider? And I want you to notice exactly what he says in verse 8. He says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Listen, since I'm a foreigner, there's this constant reminder. She does not belong here. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the, God, by the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Listen, folks, I want you to notice something immediately. Notice that the very first thing Boaz says to her, he calls her my daughter. Now, we just read over that, right? We're like, oh, that must be how they greeted people back then. But no, immediately from the very first time Boaz encounters this outsider, this hated enemy of God, he greets her as family. He welcomes her as family, treats her as family, and considers her family. Not only that, but notice he bestows all sorts of grace upon her. He says that uh, that he's instructed his young men not to touch her, so he's guaranteeing her safety. Not only that, but he says, hey, if you get thirsty, you can go drink from, from all the water that we have. Later, he's going to feed her, and then he's going to say, you can go among the sheaves, and you can reap even among them, and people are going to throw them on the ground, and you can pick up what they get. He is just bestowing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace towards Ruth, the outsider. Everyone else around him might hate her, they might disdain her, want nothing to do with her. But Boaz says, if you have come to seek God and you have come to take refuge under the wings of God, you are part of the family. That's how he immediately receives her. And Ruth, for her part, she cannot fathom this outpouring of grace. She even says to him, she falls down, she says, Why have I found favor in your eyes since I'm a foreigner? And it's at this point that everybody expects Boaz to drop a line, right? 
Because we know this is a love story. Everybody reads this as a love story, and it is in, in certain aspects. But, but everybody expects a line at this point. Why have I found favor? We expect Boaz to go, well, hey, listen, you're single, I'm single. I've got a field, you need food. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's what we expect, right? It's a love story. But that's not what he says, is it? It's not because he's attracted to her. It's not because he's thinking about a marriage at this point or anything like that. He even says himself why he's doing this. He plainly says that the reason is because even though she's a Moabite and an enemy of the Israelites, she has cast herself on the mercy of God and sought refuge in the wings of God. Why has she found favor? Because she came seeking after God. And since that's the case, Boaz says, you're welcome here. You will be treated as family. And that's exactly what happens. She finds that not only does she have a place in the family of God, but she has a a purpose in the plan of God. Because, as I said, Ruth and Boaz, they do have a love story here. But the greater love story being pictured here is of Christ and his church. That's the love story that we have to actually pay attention to. Because from these two people, Ruth and Boaz, there will eventually come one who will be the greater Boaz, who will bestow even more grace upon outsiders who feel as though they have no place in the family of God. They have no purpose in the plan of God. And Boaz is demonstrating to us, he is picturing for us exactly how Jesus welcomes all the outsiders. Jesus welcomes outsiders with an outpouring of grace. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in John chapter 1, where the Bible says, And from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace upon grace. It means that you have never been one second in your life, not one millisecond, not one nanosecond. You have not been one second without the grace of God in your life. That's exactly how Jesus treats the outsider. He welcomes us with this outpouring of grace. And it's important for us to understand that because I know that there are many people, and you may be one of them, who who feel like Ruth did here. You may feel like you are an unwelcome outsider. Maybe because you didn't grow up in the church. It could be that you feel like you're a stranger with regard to God and His covenant and His ways and His word. And the church has only worsened that feeling because we've made people feel like they aren't welcome here unless they match a certain standard. If they don't look a certain way, if they don't dress a certain way, if they don't talk the right way, if they're not from the right place, if they don't have the right background, well, guess what, buddy? You're not welcome here. But the good news of the gospel is that for any person who will, like Ruth, seek refuge in the wings of God, Jesus will welcome you with an outpouring of his grace. If you come seeking after God, you are welcome here. You have a place in this family and you have a purpose in God's plan. And that's because Jesus takes the outsider and he makes them part of the family. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, listen to me, that's every person in this room. You know, you normally don't read yourself into the Bible unless the Bible's talking about you. This is you. You can do it here. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and listen, don't miss this, members of the household of God. You who are an alien, you who are a stranger, you who are an outsider, you are now part of the family of God. When you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you are literally called a brother or sister of Christ Jesus. You are called a child of God, and it is all because Jesus sought you out when you were still far off. And he brought you near to God through the blood of his cross. He made you part of his family. And I want to issue a word to the church here, to every Christian who is in the room this morning. Since this is how our Savior treats the outsider, this has to be our disposition as well. We have to rid ourselves of our tendencies to make people feel like they're not welcome here unless they live up to a certain standard. We have to stop acting like the church is an exclusive country club where only certain people can get in if they're good enough. Because the truth is, none of us are, are we? Every person who comes in here has to come broken and sinful. That's the only way into the kingdom. The church is for any person who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ Jesus alone for salvation. If any person comes seeking God, they are welcome here. They are part of the family and they have a purpose in his plan. And you might be thinking, well, hey, listen, pastor, I get that. Praise God. Good news. But I've been in church my whole life. So what on earth does this have to do with me? I've never really been an outsider. Well, actually, the story continues. You know, it's not over there. Because what you're going to see is actually Boaz is going to invite Ruth to stay for dinner. And he is going to give her so much food that she eats until she's satisfied. And then don't miss this word. It's repeated multiple times. She has leftovers. You know, David's cup raneth over. Ruth's plate raneth over. She had abundance of what she needed. It's another example of Boaz's outpouring of grace. And not only that, she had so much that she was able to take it back to her mother-in-law. And so her mother-in-law, Naomi, was able to eat until she was satisfied. And there was even some left over after that. But notice in verse 19, her mother-in-law says to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. Listen, church, one of our redeemers. She didn't just happen to go to that field. God sovereignly directed Ruth and Naomi to one of their redeemers, the person who could buy them back, the person who could provide for their needs. And you see that person is Boaz. And and here's what's really interesting. It's easy to miss here. Boaz's grace not only extends to, to Ruth, the outsider, but also to Naomi. You see, he knew that she was taking care of her mother in law. He knew that Naomi had no way to provide for herself. And so Boaz sends Ruth with leftovers because he knows that Naomi needs to eat as well. And you might think, well, okay, why is that a big deal? He's just doing something nice here. It's a big deal because there are two outsiders in this story. 
You know, Ruth is the obvious one, right? She's the Moabite, the hated enemy of Israel. But what about Naomi? You might be thinking, well, how on earth is she an outsider? She's from Israel. She's from the people of God. She came from Bethlehem. Yeah, but she walked away, didn't she? She left. She made herself an outsider. She decided to walk away from God. She decided to walk away from God's people, from God's place, from God's covenant. She decided that she could live her life however she wanted to. That she could provide for her own needs better than God could. And so she decided to essentially kick God out of her life. It's what we would many of us describe as a backslider today. Someone who chooses to walk away from the Lord. You see, in the eyes of the Israelites, Naomi is a deserter. She would have been treated no better than a Moabite. They were essentially the same in their eyes. But I want you to notice this too. Notice how Boaz immediately receives her back as well. He immediately extends grace to her. He immediately makes provisions for her. Notice this, church. Boaz is not harboring any ill will towards, uh, towards Naomi. He's not harboring a grudge towards Naomi. He's not saying, well, you walked away. You deserve what you get. When Naomi comes back, casting herself on the mercy and sovereignty of God, Boaz receives her as family as well. And once again, he serves as a picture of how God receives every backslider. I mean, Jesus told us how God receives backsliders, right? You remember when he told the parable of the prodigal son? I mean, everyone in here knows that story, right? He had the son, he demanded his inheritance, give it to me now. And what does he do? He invests it wisely and he just lives a great life. No, he goes off into a foreign land. He wastes all the money, squanders it, starts living like all the heathen around him. He, he ends up getting so low and so desperate that he's living amongst the pigs. He's eating their slop. And he thinks to himself, you know, my father's servants live better than this. He knew he needed to go back to his father, but he was wondering, how could I possibly do it? How can I go back after everything I've done? After I walked away? After I've been living in such a dishonorable way, how could I possibly go back? And he says, oh, here's what I'll do. I'll come up with this speech. You know, Father, I, I don't expect anything from you. Just let me live as one of your servants and I'll be content. And so he goes back to his father and the Bible says that the father sees him at a distance. Now, at this point, does Jesus say that the father stood there sternly with his arms crossed going, well, 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 look what the cat dragged in. Does the Bible say that Jesus said the Father sees him at a distance and goes, oh, 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 that's far enough. Don't be coming back here expecting anything from me. You made your choice. Does the Bible say that the Father sees him at a distance and go, I've heard. I know what you've done. You're not welcome here. And the Bible says that when the Father sees him while he is still far off, he takes off running after him with open arms. And it's a picture of how Jesus receives back every single sinner who turns and seeks refuge in the wings of God. Jesus welcomes backsliders with mercy and forgiveness. It's a picture of him 
ready to receive back every sinner who would turn, who would cast themselves again on the mercy and grace of God. He welcomes them back. I've told you the story before of of Robert Robertson. I mean, Jaden and I didn't even plan this, the fact that he was playing Come Thou Fount. It was just amazing sovereignty of God again. But Robert Robertson, you'll remember, he's the man who wrote that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Wrote it during a time of his life when, when he was in just the closest relationship with God that he could imagine. Everything was great. You've been there before, right? When you feel like your relationship with God, it's as tight as it's ever been. I mean, we're just, just on, on cloud nine with God right now. But life happened and he fell on hard times and he eventually walked away from God. He walked away from the church, and he began to live in sin. And he spent, actually, the majority of the later part of his life living that way. Until his life began to become in shambles and just completely falling apart. He was depressed and just crying all the time. And one day, he was sitting at a, at a bench waiting on a, a, a ride to come. And a woman was sitting next to him reading a hymn book. And she read a hymn and turns to him and says, I want to ask you, what do you think of this hymn I just read? It was, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And she was asking him what he thought about it, and he he didn't want to answer. He's ignoring her. And she keeps pressing him, tell me what you think. What about this line? What about this line? What about this line? Tell me what you think. And eventually, he responds to her, and he has tears pouring down his eyes. He can't even control his sobbing at this point. And he goes, I was the man who wrote that song so long ago. And I would do anything to enjoy now the joy that I had with God then. I would do anything to go back. I would do anything to get it back. He wanted to be with God again. He wanted to have that close relationship, but he didn't know how he could possibly get back to it. And he was broken. And she looked at him and she said, Sir, the streams of mercy that you write about in this song still flow for you today. That's exactly how God responds to sinners who turn again. If you think his mercy is dried up, you are sadly mistaken, grossly mistaken. The mercy of God is a river that never runs dry. His mercies are new every single morning. You cannot drain the ocean of God's mercy. And any person who would come back to God, will be gladly received by God. And that's important for us to understand, because I know that there are people even here this morning, people who will listen online and listen to this later, who feel exactly like Robert Robertson did, and exactly like Naomi did, where they know that they've walked away. They know that they've been living in sin, and they want to get back to God, and they go, I just don't know how to get back there. I've walked away. I've been gone for too long. I left the church too long ago. I haven't been back and I couldn't tell you how long. How could I possibly go back after everything I've done? How could I possibly go back after I've been living in sin, after I've abandoned the Lord, after I have forsaken His ways and His word and His will? How can I go back? It's because God hasn't moved. He's still there. 
You are the one who's moved. And you're thinking that he's going to make you jump through hoops to get back in his good graces, but that's not our God. When you come back to God, he doesn't say, okay, here's your list. You do these things for me, and then I'll consider you good again, right? We're, we're, we'll be good at that point. You, you do all these things, you, you fulfill all these requirements, and if you do those things, then I'll receive you back. That's not our God. Jesus stands there with open arms. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He receives the backslider with mercy and forgiveness. Jesus says to us today, you have a place here, and I'm ready to receive you back. I will show you mercy. I will show you forgiveness. He's not holding a grudge towards you. So many people think that about our God, don't they? After everything I've done, God's got a grudge towards me. He's kept tabs on me. He knows what I've done. He does. But he's also prepared to forgive you as well. If you will receive his forgiveness by turning from your sins and seeking refuge in his wings. You see, whether you're an outsider who's never been part of God's family or whether you're a backslider who has walked away, the the best part of Ruth chapter 2 is that it teaches us that no matter where you find yourself, you have a place in God's family and a purpose in God's plan. I want you to understand something about Ruth. There was nothing from a worldly perspective that should have attracted Boaz to her, right? I mean, we think that's the case because, again, read it as a love story. She was beautiful after she had been working all day in the hot Israel sun. There was nothing about Ruth to attract Boaz to her. She came from the wrong land. She had a troubled past since she had already been married in Boaz Hatton. It means that she was not a virgin even though he was. She, she had a whole lot of baggage come with her. There was nothing about her to attract Boaz, and yet Boaz still pursues her and lavishes her with grace. And I want you to understand, folks, that's a picture of how Jesus pursues us. Because you need to understand there was absolutely nothing about us to recommend us to God. You know that, right, church? God does not look down from heaven and go, there's a good one there. He's going to be part of my kingdom. Oh man, she really hasn't messed up. She's going to come join me. No, nothing like that happened. There was absolutely nothing about you to recommend you to God. There was no good that he saw in you. There was no future version of yourself that he was just enamored with. The Bible says that Jesus pursued us at our worst. While we were still sinners. While we were enemies of God. The Son of God pursued you sought you out with relentless love, died in your place, brought you near to God by the blood of his cross and made you part of his family. Men, you were not Boaz in this story. Every single one of us is Ruth. We are the outsider, the stranger, the foreigner, the enemy that God should have had nothing to do with, and yet he pursued us, and he made us part of his family, and he gave us a purpose in his plan. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.